Amen. Great singing tonight. Let's go ahead and take our Bibles and turn to the 11th chapter of Matthew once again. Matthew chapter number 11. And we're going to be dealing tonight with verses 20 through 26. And really tonight will be the first of really two parts of uh, the same text. Uh, We're going to deal with the first portion of it tonight and then we'll cover uh, the remainder of it next week. So I want to draw your attention to Matthew 11 verse 20 and we're going to go ahead and read down through verse 30. And, uh, but the intent tonight is just to cover verses 20 through 26. So we'll read there beginning in Matthew 11 verse 20. The Bible says, Then began he to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done, because they repented not. Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father, save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light." Tonight, I want to deal with a very important subject, a very familiar subject to us who are, uh, of course, in this church, and of course, any that are from the uh, Reformed position, uh, because our Lord here in these particular verses is dealing with the subject of the responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God. The responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God. Of God, these verses that we've read to begin our time tonight are a tremendous and remarkable portion of Scripture. Uh, they are remarkable because we see that as this end of this chapter is uh, coming towards us, we see our own Lord dealing with what has become such a controversial thought or controversial set of beliefs or doctrines, and has really uh, divided the church. And yet here, the Lord Jesus Christ himself is confirming that those doctrines that we hold so dear to our hearts are indeed the the doctrine of our Lord. These doctrines did not begin at the Reformation. These doctrines did not begin at some period of time. Uh, These are the doctrines of the Bible. These are the doctrines that our Lord stood upon. In this particular text, we see Jesus himself very clearly spelling out 
in really three main ideas that will cover verses 20 through 30. And it's those three great doctrinal truths. First of all, the responsibility of man. Secondly, the sovereign election of God. And thirdly, the free invitation of the gospel. So it is quite remarkable that we see our Lord teaching these very dear truths, these truths that we hold so close that we consider and we think uh, these are the doctrines that saved me. These are the things that I understand because God through the Spirit has opened my eyes to these truths. It's very interesting to me anytime you see uh, the Lord using uh, these terms and these principles that we uh, consider, uh, we, we, are, we are comforted by the reality that we certainly know what the Bible says. So in verses 20 through 24, I want you to see how the Lord is dealing here with the responsibility of man and the responsibility that man has when they hear the gospel. The responsibility of man and the, the responsibility they have when they hear the gospel. Now, these verses are, are, are a set of verses. When we start looking at those, we, at first glance, we begin to say, okay, what are, these, what are these towns and these cities that Jesus is talking about? How do these apply to us today? Why are these important? Well, what we understand about these particular places that Jesus mentions, he mentions the uh, Chorazin, he mentions Bethsaida, he mentions Tyre, he mentions Sidon, he mentions Capernaum. And all of these places had heard the gospel. All of these places had been confronted with the truths of sin and been confronted with the reality that what they stood in need of was repentance. So it tells us that Jesus began to upbraid these cities. So Jesus himself begins to upbraid. Now the word upbraid means to charge with sin or to charge with wrongdoing. He begins to go to each one of these places and he's charging them with sin and he's charging them with doing something wrong. What's remarkable about this, among many things, the cities that are being upbraided are cities where most of his mighty works were done. Now isn't that incredible? The place where he did most of his works was the places that the least people or the least number of people repented. We hear it in our society today. We hear people say, listen, if we could just see the miracles of Jesus, if we could just see the works of Jesus, we would respond, we would repent of our sins, and we would believe these doctrines or these truths that you speak about. Yet notice that Jesus is upbraiding the very places that were favored with the gospel. Now the truth of this is, is that there were cities that were more favored with the Lord's presence than others. And what Jesus is saying here is because you were more favored with my presence, because you were more favored with my mighty works, there's greater accountability upon you. There's a greater level of responsibility that when you hear the gospel, when you see these mighty works, there's a greater favorable favor that's placed upon you. Now, these cities should have responded in repentance. These places should have acknowledged if they had repented, we would not be reading tonight that Christ upbraided these places. It very clearly says that the reason Jesus upbraided them was because they repented not. Now, folks, I hope we realize tonight that the full intent 
And the number one purpose of the preaching of the gospel and the number one part of the gospel message is repentance. <laughs> to repent and believe. Notice it doesn't tell us to believe and repent. There is no call in the gospel to believe first and then repent of your sin because we understand that without repentance, there is no belief. So they could have seen and witnessed all of these works and yet they, they did not They did not respond to what they were hearing and seeing with repentance. It is true that that repentance is a responsibility. The more a person hears and sees the Lord's work, the greater the obligation is for them to repent. The principle is biblical. Where the most is given, the most is required. The cities that Jesus was upbraiding were cities that were favored with his presence. Now, what does this teach us? This teaches us that Jesus' just presence does not equate or equal to everybody being converted. It does not equal that because a favored city has the presence of the Lord more than another place, that suddenly everyone's going to respond in a way that is saving. No doubt there were people that appreciated the mighty works. There were people who probably appreciated hearing that their loved one had been cured of a disease or they had seen Jesus work and they probably stood back and they marveled. But the reality is, is they did not do what they were responsible to do, which was to repent. The responsibility of the hearer of the gospel is to repent. And that's what Jesus is teaching here. Men are responsible for the way they treat the Lord Jesus Christ and his mighty works. There was a time for upbraiding, and that's what Jesus does here. He upbraids, even though this is the same Jesus that we read about when he's standing at the tomb of Lazarus. The shortest verse in the the Bible is what? Jesus wept. This same compassionate Savior is also the same one who upbraided these favored cities because they refused to repent. Some might argue, did they have enough to repent of? Were they aware of their own need of that? Well, notice what Jesus says in verse 21. Woe unto thee. The word woe is a prophetic word that actually means a curse. In other words, cursed be you, Chorazin, cursed be you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. He says, if they would have heard the same thing that you heard and witnessed the same thing that you witnessed, they would have repented a long time ago. And yet you sat hard-necked and you just didn't respond. You stiffened your neck and said, I will not repent. He pronounces a curse on them. They had enough light. They had enough witness of what they had seen. And he says, woe unto you because you would not repent. Now, every time we read these verses, there's really two things I think ought to drive us to understand what's happening here is number one, we know that man is responsible for how he or she responds to the gospel. None of us would disagree with that. Now, that's one of the accusations that often gets thrown our way, is how can a man be responsible for responding if God is sovereign and God has to open the eyes? The sovereignty of God, and we'll see this in just a minute, does not remove the responsibility from man to respond to the gospel. 
So what this does tell us then is if man is responsible, and he is, and that God is totally sovereign, here's what we know. That truly God is sovereign in not only his providential work, but he is sovereign in his grace. He sends the gospel to whom he will. Someone might say, does Jesus have a right to pronounce a woe on a particular place that sovereignly he did not open their eyes? Absolutely he does. Because if we don't believe that, then we have to believe that somehow God was indebted to you and I to open our eyes. You see, the reality is that the question is not, why does he not choose some? The question is, why does he choose any? Now, you all have been around uh, the theology long enough to know that's the ultimate question, is it not? It's easy for us to say, well, why didn't he open the eyes of everybody? Why does he open the eyes of any? Does Jesus have a right to place a woe or a curse on a favored city because their eyes were not open to the truth? Yes, biblically, they're still responsible. So we know, first of all, that God is totally sovereign. It's not a popular doctrine, but it's biblical. Number two, the most, I guess we could say, the worst wickedness in the world is the sin of unbelief. That is the worst of sins. The people who hear the gospel and still refuse to believe it, right, are guilty of what the Bible declares to be the greatest sin, unbelief. Now, they might be moral people. They may actually be respectable people. They might be pillars in society. People look and we say we have great respect for them. They may actually behave well. But the reality is an unrepentant individual stands before God in an unconverted state. And that standing is worse than the idolatries that were taking place in Tyre and Sidon. And and get this, the sin of unbelief is even more vile than the sins of Sodom. Now it's easy for us to sit back and say, well, where's the worst sin in the world that ever happened? And, And a lot of people will say this. Even the world will say this. Well, the worst sin that ever took place was Sodom and Gomorrah. You realize that's not the worst sin. The worst sin in the world and the evil that would keep my standing exactly the same is the sin of unbelief. It's not the sins that happened in Sodom and Gomorrah that separated them from God. It was unbelief. That's what separates a soul from the presence of God. The crime that Jesus was condemning these groups with, these cities, is willful unbelief. In light of what he says here to Chorazin and Bethsaida, the great woe that's pronounced upon these cities. Why was there a woe pronounced? Because these were the cities with high privileges, high favor, and they regarded the works of God as nothing. Now I think, and you might disagree with me on this, because I can't point to you chapter and verse and say this about our country. But I will say this. 
that I am convinced in my mind that the United States of America would fall into the category of one of the most favored nations who has heard the gospel over and over again, who has witnessed the workings of God. They've seen the providential hand of God in protection. They've seen the providential God for hand of God even in their own life, and yet they refuse to repent. I don't think there's any question at all the United States is a favorite, has the favor of God upon it. Will that be forever? I don't know. But the reality is, is can a most favored nation still have a woe pronounced upon it? Absolutely it can. You realize there is no scripture that actually says the United States, even in end times prophecy, is even mentioned. We're not there. The United States isn't there. Somehow that, that we'd, we're, we're, the, we're still standing at the end of it. But the reality is here is what is the requirement? The requirement is the responsibility on man is to respond. Notice Jesus says in verse 22, But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. Uh, there were great sins going on in these places, and yet those who would not receive, those that would not hear, he said, your judgment will be the worst. Now look at verse 23, because this is really where we start to see this responsibility. And thou, Capernaum. Capernaum, if you were to truly uh, study the Bible honestly, and I hope that's the only way you study it, Capernaum was probably the most favored. Notice what he says about Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained unto this day. Do you know what Jesus just said? If the same works Capernaum has seen Jesus do, the same works, if those works would have been done in Sodom, Sodom would have repented and would still be standing today. That is an unbelievable accusation. He says, Capernaum, you have actually seen more than what Sodom and Gomorrah saw, and yet they were destroyed. And he says, because of that, because of the light that you've witnessed, because of what you have seen, that the, the judgment is going to be more tolerable for them. Look what it says, verse 24, but I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. So how does Jesus think and feel about those who reject the gospel when they hear the gospel? He says it would be more tolerable for Sodom and more tolerable for these other cities than for you who remain in unbelief. Man is truly responsible for how he or she responds to the gospel. So that's a word about the gospel. But then notice Jesus turns this conversation, and look at what he says in verse 25. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father. He now turns and begins to speak to his heavenly Father. And he gives his heavenly Father a word of praise and a word of thanksgiving. I'm always struck by this because we never think about Jesus having to speak a word of praise. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, we talk about how we're to praise Jesus and we're to have hearts of thanksgiving. Jesus gives this perfect example. He who is fully God, fully man, 
looks and speaks to his heavenly Father, and he says specifically, I thank thee, O Father. He even acknowledges his Father's sovereignty. Lord of heaven and earth. Jesus has a word of praise and thanksgiving for what he's getting ready to talk about, which is the sovereign election of God. He actually says it. I've heard people say Jesus never talked about the sovereignty of God in salvation. He never talked about the sovereignty of God in who he would show and who he would hide it from. But do you know what Jesus is actually doing here? He's thanking God, his Father, for the sovereignty. Look what he says. Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent. You mean this God hides things? You mean this God actually keeps or prevents certain people from actually seeing it? Scripturally, that's what it says. Now, the free will individual says, Jesus only does that after man's been given ample time to respond to it and reject him. That's when he hides it. But you notice what Jesus thanks his father for. He says that you've hid these things from the wise and prudent and has revealed them unto babes. Jesus is thanking his father that he hides these truths from those who consider themselves to be wise and prudent in their own eyes. The individual, as Jesus is giving thanks to the Father, he's thanking his Father for distinguishing sovereign grace. However we want to put this, God in his sovereignty chooses whose eyes are going to be open. These, this choice of sinners. If he's hiding things from some, what does that imply? That he's not hiding it from others. Now we could try to define the word what he means by hid. Or we can take scripture literally, and, and we do take scripture literally to an extent from the, from the point that you know, there, are, 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 there are allegories that are given in scripture. But if we understand what the word hidden means, it means to keep from view. It means to keep from understanding. And he says that, Father, I thank you. I thank you that you have hidden these things from people who are wise in their own eyes. Now, this is not just a random quote. Jesus is actually quoting Isaiah 5.21. And here's what Isaiah 5.21 says. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Imagine that. Jesus is quoting Scripture to His Father. He used, Isaiah used the same word, woe. Curse be upon those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. It is true that the Lord reveals His mercy unto whom? Unto the humble and to the meek and to the lowly. That doesn't change the fact that our salvation comes as a result of divine revelation. 
But do you realize that nobody receives the divine revelation of God's grace but those who receive the word of God by faith in humility? You know what the doctrines of grace do to you folks? They humble you. But do you know what the accusation is from the people who call themselves wise? The doctrines of grace actually make you prideful because you think you're one of the chosen. A true understanding that the doctrines of grace does not lead to arrogance and pride. It leads to humility. Because now we become the sinner who says, why would you reveal these things to me? Why would you give me salvation? God will never, ever reveal His grace until He brings a person down to see their need of His grace. Folks, as long as a person remains wise in their own eyes and wise in their own conceits and arrogance, they will never see the truths of the gospel. They will never, be, a man has got to humble himself to even receive the grace of God. The Lord Himself will never teach any man or woman until they are made to see that they need Him. And they need to learn of Him. Our Lord here assigns or confirms that our salvation is the result of God's own appointment, His own decree, and His own sovereign pleasure. In other words, that is the only cause of our salvation. It's not my wisdom and my prudence and then God. The only cause of our salvation is the divine appointment of God and His sovereign pleasure. The sovereign election of God. Who are the pride? Who are the prideful? Who are the wise? They are those who presume and they reason only with the human mind. They try to reason God's sovereignty. They try to reason, is God acting fairly? Is God acting righteously? And do you know the greatest accusation against the sovereign election of God is that God's not being fair. God always does what's right. He's never unfair, and He's never unjust. In Genesis, it actually says, the judge of the earth will always do right. Now here's also what the wise in their own eyes do. They command God to give an answer. God does not owe you or I or anyone on this planet who has lived or ever will live an answer for why He does what He does. You see, humanity wants to know why. Humanity thinks that we can, that we can demand from God. The Lord Himself and the prophet Isaiah said this very clearly. And even Job made mention of it. Who has been His counselor? Who does God have to consult with? No one. 
God doesn't have to ask the permission of an individual to save that individual. When we're getting, when we are converted and we repent of our sins, it's not because we were asking God permission, but because we were saved according to his sovereign good pleasure. One thing we know for sure is that his counsel and his sovereign purposes will stand and that he will always do his good pleasure. Everything he does is right. So was Jesus confirming that his father was right in hiding hiding these things from the wise and prudent? Absolutely. You don't see Jesus here accusing the father of doing something unfair or unjust. He doesn't plead with the father. Father, how can we do this? How can you hide these truths from some people? How can you hold them responsible if we're not opening your eyes or you're not opening their eyes? It's not what Jesus is doing. He thanks his father that these things have been hidden. And then he says, not only am I thankful that you've hidden these things, but I'm also in the same context, I'm thankful that you have revealed them unto babes. Who are these babes? These babes are the very opposite of the wise and prudent. He rejects the prideful and he blesses the humble. His conduct towards his creation, his conduct towards unconverted sinners is not moved or changed or altered or hindered by anything in the creature. In other words, what God does with us has nothing to do with what man is doing. All man can have credit for is sin. The only thing I can take credit for is my sin. And the only thing I can take credit for is that I deserve to be separated from God for all of eternity because of that sin. But yet in his glorious sovereign pleasure, he opened my eyes, unstopped my ears to see these truths. Which leads me to now say, there's absolutely no righteous merit in and of myself that I can claim. I can only claim the merits and the righteousness of Christ, which folks, we hear that so often here. But I hope we fully are getting what that really means. All we have to offer is sin and enmity towards God. And yet He gloriously saves us. Not because He move, that we move Him. His conduct towards us is a perfect standard. He does not show mercy because there's good in us. Nor does He keep back things that we do or do not deserve. It is not our merit or our misery that has anything to do with the purposes of God. We are not making Him move one way or the other. Jesus is saying that it is His sovereign will towards us and his purposes being carried out is what Jesus is being thankful for. For some reason, the Lord, in choosing those that he has chosen, 
has taken the opportunity to remove us from the misery in order that He might magnify the abundant, unending, glorious riches of His grace. That we, who are nothing but sinners, who have nothing to offer but sin, might be trophies of His glorious grace. He didn't do it because He was moved by our actions. Jesus clearly says, you've hidden it from the wise and prudent and you've revealed it unto babes. Before His mercy, we had nothing but misery. Before He loved us, guess who we loved? Ourselves. That passage, He loved us first, or that statement, that really sums it up. You and I had zero love towards God before He loved you. Yet, you can run into and speak with people who are unconverted, and they will say, I love God. If they have not been converted, they cannot love God. Because the Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher, which means it spews hatred towards God. The only reason you and I say I love God tonight is because He first loved us. That's it. That's the only, only thing that we can even claim. And we know that this is exactly what Jesus meant to say by what appears to be a very simple statement, but so powerful. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. Jesus is saying this is according to your good pleasure. This is what is good in your sight. That means whose eyes have been opened, whose ears have been unstopped, is according to what is good in his sight. We understand that what Jesus is leading to. I'm going to just kind of introduce this. We're not going to expound this much tonight. But I want you to see that that's what leads us into verse 27. And Jesus makes, a, again, another remarkable statement. He says, All things are delivered unto me of my Father. And no man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son. And he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. And then Jesus speaks the most familiar, probably of chapter Matthew chapter 11, the most familiar verses. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What Jesus is doing here, and I love, I love the, the note that's in my Bible here. It, it, and it, it says this, and I want to share this with you. In verse 27, Jesus is defining the unique relationship, that's the knoweth, that he has with God 
as his father, which distinguishes him from all men and exalts him above the angels. On the basis of Christ's divine identity, the Father appointed him as the only mediator so that he alone rules over all things with God's authority. He alone reveals God to sinners in a saving way. Think about that. And the last note says this, Christ is free, listen to this, Christ is free and sovereign to reveal God or not reveal Him to each individual as the Lord chooses. This relationship is what we'll talk about next week. But the beauty in this principle, man is responsible to repent. But God is sovereign. Does that change the message that we as a church preach? Absolutely not. Now the reason this third section is called the free invitation of the gospel is because there are some in some reform circles who would actually split from us on this and would go towards a doctrine called hyper-Calvinism where they would say, okay, if God is sovereign, then we, don't have, we shouldn't give the invitation of the gospel to anybody because he's already chosen who's going to do it. Biblically, all three of those go together. Man is responsible, God is sovereign, and we have a responsibility to give the gospel to every single creature. We are never once told that you and I have the authority to tell someone you are not worthy of hearing this. That's why you'll never hear me say from this pulpit that there's only, there's only some of you can, who can possibly hear this. No, it's a free invitation of the gospel to everybody to repent and believe, and that crosses every line of humanity, no matter what they've done. If I'm preaching the gospel in a church of what most people are going to say we're all saved people or at least we're in church, I would preach that same message in a prison. I wouldn't change it. It wouldn't matter who the audience is. If I was preaching to a group of people who were mocking and spitting at me and were living in their sin outwardly and openly and they were mocking God, I would preach the same message. Repent and believe the gospel. The free invitation of the gospel would be given to them just like anyone else. It wouldn't just be the person who looks like they're on the edge of going over the edge into conversion. And we'll kind of talk about that next week, about what did Jesus really mean when he said, come unto me? Was he just talking about the invitation of the gospel? Or was he talking about something even more and we'll get into that because we know that Jesus Christ, of course, is the one who meets the needs of all people. So we'll look at verses 27 through 30 uh, next week. And I hope, I hope tonight has at least uh, given us a, a, just another glorious reminder of uh, just the beauty of, of God's sovereign grace. And uh, if, if it wasn't already humbling to you, um, I hope that tonight it has added another level of humility to our salvation to where we leave here tonight praising God that he didn't hide these things from us and that he opened our eyes to the truth 
And that's what we pray for. We pray that our children's eyes would be open. We pray for our loved one's eyes to be open. We pray for those who we work with. People say, how do we pray for people? That's exactly how you pray. Pray that God would open their eyes. Pray that God would not hide it. And if pray that God would not let them be wise in their own eyes, but that they would be humbled to see these great truths. So I hope that'll help us tonight. Let's pray together, and then we'll sing a closing hymn. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for just this wonderful passage that to us that are already saved and already regenerated, and Lord, we are just reminded once again of the beauty of our salvation. And Father, every reminder that we see brings us more, more close to view just how wonderful our salvation is. And Father, even when the world mocks and sadly even some denominations mock sovereign grace and salvation is of the Lord, may we just be even now more secure and steadfast in the beauty of what the Bible teaches. Father, thank you for allowing us to be here this evening to hear the word of God preached and proclaimed once again. May our faith be strengthened. May we leave here rejoicing. But may we also leave here with a burden, a burden to pray and to witness and to preach the gospel to everyone we see. Help us not to be blinded in our own conceit to believe who is worthy to receive and who is not worthy, and realize that the only thing, even in ourselves, we can merit and take credit for is our own sin. But Lord, I also pray we would leave here tonight encouraged. Encouraged by your goodness and encouraged in your grace. We thank you, we praise you. And it's in Christ's name I ask these things. Amen. Well, let's take our hymn books and close with...